from the High Center Studios of 16-time soccer national champions Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, we're going to start the episode off with uh, another quiz, some okay. questions for you here. I think that I can will, handle it. That will lead into, our, lead into our discussion here this episode. First of all, have you ever been to Maine? Yes. The answer is yes, I have. Um, my family, pre-Nilsa, vacationed there one summer, ate some lobster, shivered during a swim in the cold waters of the North Atlantic, and I think I, we, we did a little bit of hiking up in Acadia National Park. How about you? You know, something almost identical experience. It was like two summers ago, my extended family headed up there. We went to Bahaba, uh, as they pronounce it up there. My wife actually has a Bahaba sweatshirt with like sheep on it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Acadia National Park, the whole, the whole thing, the whole touristy thing. So, so yes, and you know, that's been my only time up there to Maine. Haven't been up, up since. Okay. Question number two, are you a soccer fan? Uh, yes, although not, I, I wouldn't say diehard, right? We've, we've had some discussions here on the podcast about our, our shared love of baseball, and I, I'm not quite as deep into soccer as I am into baseball, but I, I historically support the, the Greek side, Panathinaikos, which is uh, actually a team from Athens, and their, their home ground is right next to the apartment where um, I lived uh, when I was actually a junior here at Messiah and studied in Athens for a semester. And, you know, I got to see the fervor of European football supporters, Full volume, flares, uh, you know, mild worry about my physical safety, but uh, it was a lot of fun going to see games there. But, um, uh, and of course, you know, you don't get to be a Messiah Messiah student and not learn to love what is the most decorated Division Three soccer school, both men and women in in the whole country. I think there was, I think I remember reading a couple of years ago, I think behind Indiana University in Bloomington, where I know you have some connections. I do. And... North Carolina, Messiah College is the third best place in the country to watch soccer. I mean, you go to a Saturday night soccer game at Messiah, it's packed out. They're competing for a national title every single year. It really is amazing for such a small place. Yeah, 11 men's championships and five women's championships, which is the most of any uh, for both for both men and women. And just recently, November 2017, uh, they won their the men won their 11th. Also, what's this deal? I'm not a big soccer guy, I'll admit it, right? I I I'll go to the Messiah game simply because it's kind of the thing to do, right? My kids were little, I used to take them a lot. I haven't been to many recently. What is this support stuff? Like I support this team and I support that team. Like, is that like unique to, to, uh, you know, I support Manchester United or something like that. I mean, in, in short, it's, it's hipster nonsense. You know, we, (laughs) we hipsters love to, to be kind of counter, uh, countercultural and, and it's a way to both love sports and, 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 uh, you know, distance yourself from the hoi polloi of, uh, right. of, of American sports fandom. But, uh, I mean, I think it's just, you know, kind of the yeah. way they talk about it in Europe. And so if you want to be snobby and in the know, you have to say it the same way. And anyone, by the way, Drew, anyone who supports a team from Greece, they got to know something about soccer, right? <laughs> I can't even name a soccer team in Greece. Well, now you can name one. <laughs> right. I still can't. Okay. Third question. Are you interested at all, whether it be in your scholarly work or through reading the newspaper and so forth, are you interested in the history of immigration or race? 
and how those things impact communities. This this question is kind of a setup, right? Because you're not going to who's going to say no? I'm not, yeah. right? Well, obviously, as as uh, I'm an Atlantic historian by training, that is a history of of immigration, of in some ways forced immigration in, in the case of the Atlantic slave trade, colonization, forced migration, and uh, when speaking about indigenous people and and Indian removal in the early American Republic, but also just kind of personally, I mean, it's. Uh, immigration and, and race and refugee issues are it's my wife's work and it's my it's her life's work and she's she's a, a middle school ESL teacher in, in the in Lancaster Pennsylvania which is um, come to be known as the city with the highest refugee population per capita generally right there um, you know the there are, there are places that might have a higher per capita population of one particular refugee group, but just across the board, Lancaster's uh, per capita uh, refugee population is the highest in the country. And I, she she loves it. We're actually moving to Lancaster because we want we want to make sure that Nilsa is going to um, school with 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 my wife's students. You know, we picked a church in Lancaster that supports the the. The, the work of of refugee resettlement in 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 the city so it's it's something we're as a family really passionate about so what what kind of refugee communities does your wife work with she's an elementary school teacher uh, middle school middle school teacher, school yeah. teacher. well I mean uh, she's had a number of Syrian refugees come into her school in the last couple of years she has a number of um, refugees from the Karen ethnic group which is an ethnic minority mm-hmm. in 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 Burma Myanmar who have been displaced and and or have been in camps in Thailand She's uh, Haitian, uh, Haitian refugees. I mean, she's a large influx of more um, Puerto Rican students since uh, Hurricane Maria. So, I mean, it, it, it's a, a pretty wide um, population, but they, you know, many of the issues and, and many of the, the, the hurdles that, that refugees face when they come to the United States are the same, no matter where you're from. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm two generations removed from the Italian American and Slovakian American immigrant experience. I have, have I haven't taught it in a while. But did you take me for Immigrant America? I did. Yeah, I, did. I taught Immigrant America. I, I, I in my rotation, I had an Immigrant America course. I really enjoyed teaching it. So much has changed, though, in American immigration history in the last 20, 30 years. I haven't taught it in a while. So I think if I ever go back to teach it, I'm going to have to do a lot of work in terms of getting that course up to speed. You know, as an early Americanist, I probably spent much more time on kind of migration patterns in the Atlantic world mm-hmm. than I did on, you know, Syrian refugees and so forth. But uh, I've always been fascinated with the topic simply because it's so, wa- it's so for me, so wound up with uh, American identity and those kinds of, or even race, those kinds of questions. Yeah, I still, I still remember the research paper that you assigned me. And it, it's funny how some of these political conversations haven't changed as much because I remember I, I, I did my research paper with, on an, um, an immigrant in my own church uh, back in Carlisle who, uh, you know, I'll, he'll remain nameless, but he was an illegal immigrant for a while and, and then became um, naturalized. But I, I wrote the paper because he was, he was from England. And so it was okay. a way to kind of problematize the face yeah. of, of undocumented immigration. He came over on a work visa and overstayed it and, uh, okay. and then ended up getting married here. But, um, it, you know, he was really honest and it was a really, it was a really interesting take on, on the undocumented experience from someone who doesn't have the face we normally right. assign to undocumented That's right. I think I, I remember that. I assigned everyone to do a research paper with their predominantly primary source being an interview. And oral. Right. We did a lot of oral history in that class, too. So, Drew, 
the reason I'm asking you all of these questions is today our guest, Amy Bass, is going to bring all of these themes together in one interview. And their interview is going to be based on a book that we're going to talk about here in a second. Amy Bass is very familiar with the show. Some of you remember the last time we had her on the podcast. That's right. Our first returning guest. That's right. She is. She was on the show in fall of 2016. I think it was episode 14. She was on to talk with us about the 2016 Olympics and give us some insight from the perspective of someone who ran the NBC research room at the Olympics for many years. And I believe that was right after the Chicago Cubs had also won the World Series. So she was riffing a little bit on that with us too. Uh, It's not often that we have an Emmy Award winning sports historian and writer on the show. So anytime we get a chance to have Amy back on the podcast, we're going to jump at it. Hopefully this today's interview will not be the last time she's on the show. And I have a hunch that as long as we're doing this, she's going to be writing and we're going to have her back probably multiple times. Anyway, Amy's new book, which I referenced, is titled One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. It tells the story of the Lewiston, Maine, Blue Devil soccer program. They were the 2015 Class A Maine state champions. And I don't want to steal any of Amy's thunder but her books, book recounts the amazing story of how one main community was transformed by a soccer team made up of largely Somalian refugees. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this interview. I think it's going to be a really fascinating story. Yeah, me too. I, we'll get to Amy here in a second, Drew, but tell us how we can get connected. Absolutely. We've been invited to join as an inaugural podcast on the newly launched Recorded History Podcast Network. Uh, This is a curated collection of some very diverse podcasts with one thing in common, an eye towards history. So some are going to be snarky. Some are going to be more serious. Some are kind of intentionally broad, like ours. We we cover a wide range of topics as long as it's historical thinking, while others take a deep look at a narrow topic. There's a really fascinating one called The Second Decade, all about the second decade of of the history of the United States. Regardless, we think this is going to be a great opportunity to build our audience with other podcasts doing similar work. In fact, you're going to start hearing promos from some of the other shows during our episodes. And if you want to check out some of our fellow Recorded History podcasts, head over to recordedhistory.net. Yeah, and I think I think this was a, a good move for us. Hopefully it's not going to be too intrusive on our on our listenership a few ads here and there. We still, Drew, are we still doing, though, the Patreon campaign? Yeah, absolutely. We'll continue to rely on patrons as well. On that note, we do want to thank our gold sponsors, Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. That's on Twitter and Facebook and consider giving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. So it, we're, we're kind of diversifying here, getting, getting um, some support in a lot of different ways. We're actually exploring um, with uh, the Recorded History uh, Network about providing an ad-free version of the podcast for our, our, our sponsors. That's st- something that's still in the works. So, um, you know, it, something to keep your eye out on, but hopefully we can find a way to, to kind of get, get our support from, from all angles and, and continue to be producing quality content without, um, without too much intrusion. 
Yeah, again, thank you so much for everybody who supports us on the Patreon page. We still need you. Uh, even with this new relationship with the Recorded uh, History Podcast, we still need your support uh, to make this thing happen week to week. You know, we have bills to pay. We have uh, employees to pay. So if you like what we're doing here, please head over to Patreon and uh, help us out with even a small donation. And I believe uh, we still have mugs, right, Strew? We still have mugs. Mugs and, and, and signed copies of the book. We may even work out a way to kind of get out my forthcoming book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, to some of our patrons, too. So stay tuned for possible announcements on that. Well, with that, John, you have some thoughts for us today. Though I am certainly no expert in the field, I've talked about the intersection between sports and American culture several times in the short history of this podcast. Back in episode 14, you may remember I discussed the way the Olympics... Billie Jean King, Muhammad Ali, and baseball free agency were windows into my childhood understanding of American culture and politics. In episode seven, I shared what some I shared somewhat nostalgically about my love of the New York Mets. And after reading Amy Bass's book, One Goal, I am reminded as well of the ways in which sport brings people together amid their differences. As we record today's episode, the 2018 Olympic Games in Pyeongchang are less than a week away. Though coverage of the Olympics now needs to compete with a host of other television and internet options, and globalization continues to eat away at national loyalties, I think it is fair to say that the Olympics play a unifying role in American life. For two weeks, we put aside our many differences and cheer on the athletes representing our country. We unite around certain ideals that we celebrate as Americans, hard work, dedication, ambition, striving towards goals, and to quote the old ABC's wide world of sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Sport can often result in violence and division, but it can also have a healing quality to it. I remember watching New York Mets catcher Mike Piazza hit a two-run homer in the bottom of the eighth inning to give the Mets an eventual 3-2 victory over the Atlanta Braves, only 10 days after the catastrophic events of September 11, 2001. Shea Stadium cheered, and for a moment, everyone in the crowd that day and the New Yorkers watching and listening at home were able to forget about the events that had just occurred in their city. The same year, the Yankees helped heal a suffering New York City with its 2001 run to the World Series. When baseball resumed on September 18, the Yankees were in Chicago to play a series against the White Sox. Several fans came to Comiskey Park that day with signs reading, We are all Yankees. The Iroquois have long connected the game of lacrosse with the strengthening of Indian identity. They described it as a medicine game an athletic competition that brought healing and spiritual strength to their people. In Iroquois culture, lacrosse games were accompanied by celebrations, storytelling, religious rituals, and other forms of community building. Sport can also help us transcend nationalism. In a November 2015 CNN.com essay that inspired her book One Goal, Amy Bass described 70,000 soccer fans joining together in Wembley Stadium to sing the national anthem of France after the Paris terrorist attacks. 
English fans had been asked before the match, Bass writes, to learn the words of the opponent's anthem to make the French team feel welcome and supported. And let's not forget how Cold War tensions between the United States and China were lessened when the United States table tennis team toured Beijing, Shanghai, and other Chinese cities during the so-called ping-pong diplomacy tour of 1971. Sports will never have the capacity to solve the world's most pressing problems, but historically it has often served as a means of entry into public and communal life. For every brawl that takes place in a crowded soccer stadium, we could also point to a story like the one Bass tells about the white community and Somali community in Lewiston, Maine. Our guest today is Amy Bass. Bass teaches history at the College of New Rochelle in New York and is the author of four books, including Not the Triumph but the Struggle, the 1968 Olympics and the Making of the Black Athlete, and Those About Him Remain Silent, the Battle over W.E.B. Du Bois. In addition to her academic work, she's written about sports and politics for Slate, Salon, The All-Rounder, and CNN Opinion. She hosts a weekly radio show, Conversations with Amy Bass, on WVOX New York. In television, she served as senior research supervisor for NBC Olympic sports across eight Olympic Games, winning an Emmy Award for her work at the London Olympics in 2012. Her current book is One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. We are here with our first return guest to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, Drew. Amy Bass, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me back. Thanks, Drew. Of course, um... Amy is an old, old friend from back in graduate school days. She's gone on and done some incredible things, including this new book, One Goal, Coach, a Team, and the Game that Brought a Divided Town Together. This is a book about the Lewiston Blue Devils soccer team, the 2015 Maine Class A soccer champions. And we want to talk a little bit about this team. Who were they? Who were the Lewiston Blue Devils? And why are they, uh, why do they merit an entire book, Amy? <laughs> um, the Lewis and Blue Devils are my favorite team, <laughs> second only to the Red Sox. Um, there you go. I, I will be unbiased. I will be totally biased in terms of that. We got I a New York fan, Josh, behind the glass, <laughs> and he's already given us the <laughs> thumbs down. So, yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to win that battle. Yeah. Um, the Lewis and Blue Devils are a soccer team led by this incredible man, Coach Mike McGraw, who was in his fourth decade looking for a state title as head soccer coach. Um, and it was a team that took on very different players than it had traditionally had. It's a team that was, it's, it's starting varsity roster was almost entirely comprised of African immigrants, African refugees, mm-hmm. uh, as part of this, this community that had formed starting about 15 years ago in Lewiston, Maine. So on the surface, it, it's, you know, this heartwarming story about a, a team's quest for, for glory, um, but it's also a story about this community, this complicated story about this community um, that involves, you know, immigration and refugees and race and religion and culture and language uh, mm-hmm. and education and family. Um, it's a story that I thought when I first started it uh, almost two years ago that needed to be told then. It's a story that um, has to be told, I think, now. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that whole sort of social cultural dimension of the story. I'm, I'm part of me is just wondering what first got this story in 
in front of you? Why did you first get interested or even hear about this team uh, kind of um, in the middle of nowhere in Maine? Well, the answer to that will not surprise John at all. Yeah. Um, Facebook is how I found this mm-hmm. team. Um, I went to Bates College, which is in Lewiston, Maine, where this story takes place. I graduated long before um, the Somali influx into Lewiston took place. So there, there was not an African population. Uh, when I went to college at Bates, Lewiston was a, a sort of taking on the identity of former mill town. Um, most of the factories were closed at one time. Lewiston was a French Canadian, um, populated city. It's still very largely French Canadian, uh, in terms of its, its longer arc of immigration history. Um, and it was, it was a place that had seen better days when I was a college student and I was very myopic as a college student. I, you know, went to classes and went to parties and, and didn't really think about the city I lived in, but there was, a article that a friend of mine who still lives in Maine from a friend of mine from college posted about this team that caught my eye and it was November, 2015. So this team had just won its first state championship. Um, spoiler alert there, there you go. Um, but, but a lot was going on in the United States and a lot was going on in the world that sort of made my head, which always thinks about sports in terms of a political lens, in terms of a, a cultural lens, the, um, you know, the terrorist bombings in Paris had just happened. And, and the first of those bombings happened at Stade de France. There was a, a soccer game going on. So I thought, you know, yeah, if, you, if you're looking for, you know, sporting events are always targets in that way because you can you can guarantee a crowd. And, and certainly in Europe, soccer is, is going to be your go to. And the, the Syria crisis was was even a bigger crisis. It was it was just hitting yeah. proportions that were hard to, to wrap your head around. And you had U.S. governors coming forward and saying, you know, not not in my state. I don't want any refugees in my state. And then you had this soccer team in in Maine. It seemed almost inexplicable that had done this thing that had never been done before for their school and had and had worked with this coach that was a legend in this town. Um, And then I looked at who this team was and where they had come from. And I wrote a very brief piece about it for CNN and then in a really weird twist of events, USA Today wrote a piece about my piece, wow. um, which seemed really strange yeah, to yeah. me. Uh, and then an editor from one of the big five houses called the next day and he said, have you thought about writing a book? And my answer was very honest. And I, I still have the email. I said, I've thought about nothing else for the last 48 hours. So you entered this project after they won the, the state title? Is that yep. Yep. I did. Okay. So, so explain that to me because, you know, the book reads like you're chronicling the state title. I am chronicling the state title. Um, the book uses, you know, we live in an amazing age. We live in an age where kids have their whole stories on their phone. (laughs) Um, we live in an age before I went up and met anyone. I had watched so much of this season on YouTube alone. Right. Um, so you know, putting together the book involved video footage. It involved sports writers. I was really grateful to some amazing sports writers who were in Lewiston. Right. Um, one of them, Kevin Mills, passed away oh, a couple months ago, and I'm so sad he can't see this book. Um, and and conversations. And my luckiest break of all time is that Coach Mike McGraw has a memory 
like yeah. none I've ever dealt with before. And on top of that is one of the great storytellers of the world. I mean, rock on tour. He is just unbelievable. And I can ask him what color someone's shoelaces were right. eight years ago. And he can answer that question. So yeah, there was a, there was a lot of piecing together, but you know, that's where sort of the academic part of me was really helpful because, you know, historians are diggers. That's what mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, this was just rolling up my sleeves and, and getting to work. Yeah. Cause the book, the book reads, um, and you, you got to go out and get this book if you're listening, the book reads like a, like a journalistic account as if you are on the sideline. Uh, it's well, I mean, that well, it's that well constructed. So tell, but you did have access to these people and you did spend a lot of time in Lewiston. Right? Oh my gosh. So tell me about yeah. the access that you had to the team, to the coach. How did that all play out? Like, did you have to win trust? You know, what, what was that? You know, here's this person that just kind of shows up and says, I'm writing a book right about your team. <laughs> um, you know, how do you, how do you, what was the connection there? How did you make, how did you win their trust? How did you, what kind of access did you have? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a long process and you have to be patient yeah. and you have to understand that you're not always going to do things the way you've always done them. Um, so I started with coach McGraw. I had contact with him, um, to write the original piece for CNN. Um, and I, I liked him immediately because he took a really long time to get back to me. And I was kind of like, I'm on deadline. What's going on? And yeah. he was teaching, he's a biology teacher. And yeah. he, he wrote something to the effect of my kids come first. And I was like, okay good. Um, yeah. and so when the idea of a book came up, yeah, I was totally freaked out. I mean, let's just put that on the table. Um, thinking how on earth am I going to get this kind of access that I think I'm going to need? And I asked him, I didn't tell him, I didn't show up and say I'm writing a book. Um, I composed an email and said, this is really what I want to do. And I'm putting all my cards on the table. And to his credit, he took a while to answer me and he should have, because mm -hmm. there was a lot to consider. Um, and he said, he said, yes, that he wanted the story to be done right. And he, he'll, t he told me later that it was sort of a gut thought. Yeah. And so that looking at that, which was the end of 2015, I made my first trip to Maine in February, 2016. Um, and it was, I sort of had this bucket list agenda, right? Like this is what I need to do for this book. Right. I have to interview this person, interview this person, interview this person. And I learned very quickly that instead of sort of being like, you know, meet me at two o'clock and we're going to talk for four hours, yeah, yeah. I needed to just start hanging out and let people get used to me. Yeah. So there were certainly some interviews, you know, the, the city administrators and, and people like that, that I absolutely set up, you know, appointments with and what have you. And the first time I sat down with, with McGraw, I had read literally everything there was to read. I knew his entire game play by play for the last three years. Yeah. So my memory is pretty good too. So, you know, he and I would sit down and he would launch off into tales and he would say, well, you know, and that's when Ben scored the four goals. And I said, Oh, in the Lawrence game in the second half, after you pulled the varsity right. roster and then you did. <laughs> yeah. So like very quickly, yeah. I, I think that we started to really enjoy talking to each other. Um, yeah. Yeah because I had become a student of the blue devils and, and I could talk blue devils yeah, with him. Yeah. And, and you then, won his so respect. Once, yeah. Once. Yeah, absolutely. And, and once you're with the coach, you know, the team is, is the team respects him enormously. Um, and then the team is going to bring along families and then there's community. But, but seriously, if, if somebody said to me like, you know, what was your process? Hanging out was yeah. my process. 
being there. Yeah. Um, you know, I would go to football games. I would go to youth track meets, you know, yeah. in the middle of nowhere on Saturday afternoons or, or whatever. And people would say like, well, why are you going to a track meet? Well, cause some of the sisters are there, yeah. you know, running and some of the, the families are there watching and, and that coach might be good. Or I would go to, you know, one of the local, you know, community groups and, and hang out with them. And so it was, it really, it was like the art of hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and learning how to be really patient and, and you also have to be really patient cause you're writing about teenage boys and teenage boys aren't on time ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it, it just happened and I'm really, you know, I feel really grateful and really lucky that these, these people let me tell their story. Um, and I don't, you know, there isn't a turning point where I was like, aha. I mean, I remember one, it was in the fall, so it must've been the 2016 season, mm -hmm. I was in the locker. I suddenly was like, whoa, I'm in the locker room, yeah. like with a camera. How did this happen? Right, right. <laughs> you know? Or I'm breaking fast with someone during yeah. Ramadan and this food is delicious. And how right. did this happen? Um, I don't know when it happened. It, it happened over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, although in the in the big picture of things, I wrote this book so fast. <laughs> you must have. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's this one there's this one moment. Am I right about this, Amy, where am I right that you were actually um, like you were getting like a tour of one of the kids houses. You like describe like his, I think it's his messy bedroom or his refrigerator yeah. in his bedroom or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it literally, you were in their homes too. Yeah. 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 Look, these are, these are amazing. You know, yeah. I was taught, I think that the best way to talk about it is that they became my teachers. Uh -huh. Um, and you know, I, I went in with an open head and open arms and open heart and, and they did too. Do you stay um, in touch? Yes, absolutely. And what do they think of you? Do they, you know, are they, what did, have they read any of the book or are they, you know? No, you um, no, although a really cool thing happened. And if you get the audio book, um, Muhammad Khalid right. came down to New York and did part of the audio book, um, which I'm so excited about. And it was so cool to have him down here to do that. Um, so I, you know, what do they, what do they think? You know, they're, again, you have to remember that these are high, I mean, right, they're, you right. know, most of them are out of high school by now, not all of them. Yeah. Um, these are really young guys. Yeah. And so they think like, Hey, how many pictures of me did you take in that game? And yeah, can right, I have yeah, them? Cause sure, I want to sure. Snapchat them. Right. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's what they think. The thing that they want to be known for, if I'm going to speak for them and I don't like speaking for them, mm -hmm. um, they want to be known as awesome soccer players. Yeah. And, and that at the end of the day is what they are. What, um, still on this kind of access thing. Uh, <laughs> we were talking a little bit about this before we kind of hit the hit play on the, on the record, whatever button yeah. here. Um, there are scenes in the book where you are describing, and this is more about method, right? Uh, and your research method and your writing, how, how there's moments in the book where, you know, for example, in the last chapter, you are giving uh, a kind of play-by-play -play of the final game. I mean, like it's at some points, it's like every pass, and you know, this guy crossed the ball, and you know, I'm not a big soccer guy, so forgive my lack of vocabulary. But or or you're in a meet a team meeting, and you're describing you know word for word what happened. Um, mm -hmm. Were you, you know, let's let's just take the let's just take the game itself that that championship yeah. game. Um, you weren't present for that game. So, was, uh, right. So, so how do you, are we working off of a video? Um, 
you know, it almost for a moment there, it's almost like you were on the sideline watching this and you were just kind of scribbling down. I mean, it's that real, the, the, the kind of narrative that you, that you weave here. I think there's a couple of things. So in terms of me being on the sidelines of that game, no, I wasn't. Um, how many games was I on the sidelines for? I, I can't count. Right. Um, so, you know, I spent months on the sidelines of Blue Devils games. I was to the point where I was in their halftime huddles and they didn't notice me, right? right. Like I was on the field with them. Yeah. Um, the athletic director, Jason Fuller, was amazingly lovely about supporting, you know, I was always very, I asked every time to the point where he was like, stop asking, you can just do it. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, of getting flavor and intensity and, and feeling, um, I knew what it was like to be on the sideline of a Blue Devil game. Sure. In terms of that final game, you know, which is still the largest crowd to ever see a soccer game in the state of Maine, yeah. right? Over 4,000 people were there. Mm -hmm. I started, I wrote a shell of that chapter really early. Um, I wrote a shell of the entire sort of run that season really early. And yeah. it was a re I mean, it was a shell. It was, it mm -hmm. was a barely an outline. And that was based entirely on secondary accounts. So yeah. letters to the editor and very, almost sort of, you know, John research that you would be very familiar with right. very right. archival research to, to create a shell. Yeah. And then that shell enabled me to go do interviews. So right. I could, you know, go talk to the coaches and talk to players and, and what have you. Yeah. Um, and then I got, you know, there is an official game reel, but then the, the beauty thing that I got was the goalie coach had a friend, Dan, who videoed all of the games. He taped all the games mm -hmm. from the stands. Yeah. And so Per Hendrickson, the goalie coach, sent me, uh, he gave me DVDs of both the 2014 final, which they lose, and the 2015 final in which they don't lose. Mm -hmm. um, so I was sitting in the stands, right, basically, because that was the yeah. point of view that I had. And that was a really interesting way to watch the game because while a game video, you know, is very precise and will take you through, and there were certainly lots of, you know, television stations that showed pieces of the game, the main principles association streams the game. So those were all really good perspectives for me to watch. I also had this from the bleachers video. Um, and that helped enormously, right? So I think there's one scene in that chapter or the chapter before it where Masla is warming up and, and does something. And I actually know what a fan yelled at him when he missed yeah. a shot because yeah. the fan was sitting like two guys over from the guy who, whose, whose point of view I was wow. using. Wow. Um, so then I watched those. I don't know how many times I watched those. And then I asked a local soccer coach to sit down and watch the game with me. Um, Nate Kalen. In, from and where he, you live in New York or, yeah, or oh, so, okay. yeah. so Nate Kalen was, um, was soccer coach at the college of New Rochelle for its inaugural men's season mm -hmm. two years ago. Um, and Nate and I sat down for like three hours and we went start, stop, start, stop, start, stop through the whole thing. Um, and he helped enormously with pointing things out. And then I could go back to the guys and go back to the coaches and say, Hey, because it's a complicated thing, right. Mm -hmm. That happens in this game as, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to talk too much about that, but, but they don't win. It, it's not like, it's an extraordinary circumstance under which this game ends. Um, and, and so that's, that's how it worked. And you're putting all of those things to task. Did I know how to do this? No, I'm going to be, and I'm, I've been honest about this, you know, with everybody, 
when I kind of jumped onto this project, the very first thing that I did was I bought a book about writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is my fourth book. And my husband was sort of like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm buying books about writing. I was like, this book and this, oh, narrative nonfiction in you, you know, narrative nonfiction for dummies. Let's do this. And it helped enormously because the one thing that, that I didn't know if I could do was this idea of reporting, right? Which is description right? and that, that's embedded in storytelling. So me being able to take my experience, you know, in the huddles with these guys or on the sidelines or, or walking behind coach um, as he's yelling out directives to players, all of that's reporting. Right. Mm-hmm. And that can saturate how you're how you're laying out a scene. Um, and that's how I did it. What was the best book that you read on nonfiction writing? I'm actually in some way or in, in how to write this kind of stuff. I'm actually asking this kind of selfishly, but our listeners might might want to know, too. Um, you want me to give away this, this, the secrets of the trade? Exactly. Yeah. Um, the book that I read, and it's so funny because this book is so dog-eared and torn on my shelf <laughs> is called, it's called Storycraft. Storycraft. Um, Jot that down, Drew. Writing narrative nonfiction. It's by Jack Hart. Okay. Um, I actually, I actually taught it last semester. I taught a writing course, wow. um, in our MFA program. And, um, uh, this book, it really just helped me clarify, what, what I wanted to do and what I needed to do in, and a little bit of a how to, I felt better. I mean, and that's how my brain works. You know, that's how we're trained. If you, if you need to do something, then you get a book and you learn how to do it. Now speaking, speaking of training, Amy, like you just mentioned, you've written, you wrote four books before this, right? No, this is, this is my fourth. You've written three books before this. I know at least two of them were with the university press Uh, you've written scholarship, right? You've been, you've published Mm -hmm. in the kind of elite, uh, scholarly journals of our field, right? The Journal of American History and elsewhere. Um, now that you've written this book, have you gotten a taste of this kind of this kind of writing? And can you ever go back? You know, you know, saying what what would you do this again? Would you write this kind of book again, or are you just kind of like I had this? You know, this was great. This was a sort of lightning in a bottle story. I captured it, and now I'm going to go back to doing sort of scholarship or. Or even, or even kind of, you know, non-trade press kind of, you know, writing. Right. Well, I mean, you've, you've done the same, a similar dance, John, yeah. in that, you know, I've been writing for some more mainstream organs for many years now. Right. Um, I had a long, a long stint working for NBC, um, which I guess I stopped doing once I got an Emmy. I guess that was my, my end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> moved yeah. on after that. Um, but most of your stuff, Amy, these are opinion pieces for mostly yeah. rooted in rooted in scholarship, but they're they're taking your scholarship and making it accessible. This project yeah. sounds completely different. I mean, I'm guessing you didn't have to do this kind of research with, uh, you know, Tommy Smith or, you know, 68 Olympics or something like that. No, I mean, it's I a very different that. it's a very different exercise. It is a very different so, exercise. And, and it's, you know, it, it's interesting, though, because I still think there's the same end goal. So, you know, I'm uh, one of my one of my dear friends that I, I respect so much, Carlo Rotella, um, who's chair of American studies at, at BC, at Boston College, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, is one of the great American nonfiction writers right. and, and, you know, writes long form for New York Times Sunday magazine as easily as he, you know, writes a scholarly book about about urban life. Um, and he moves back and forth all the time. And, and he and I actually did a panel at the American Studies Association um, with Mike Ezra last fall about this, about, you know, this idea of crossing over. And I, I think an, a more interesting panel might be crossing back. 
Yeah. Um, because crossing over feels very natural or it, it, it did for me anyway. Crossing back is something to think about. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still a professor of history. You know, I'm, I'm still teaching. Um, I'm teaching right now women in U.S. history and, and I teach in my honors program and, and what have you. And those things are really meaningful to me. But I think at the end of the day, what I want this book to do is no different from what I want any of my stuff to do. You know, it's sure. still about, it's still about citizenship and fear and bigotry and, and understanding, you know, what it means to, to live an American life, um, and how we can learn from people who might've had to, you know, who, who do battle to, to have it. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, this book, for the people who know my longer arc of work makes sense. Yeah, um, you yeah. know, it's still using sport as this window to get into these things. Yeah. I mean, if there's one person I could think of who could make this transition seamlessly, Amy, it's you. So you, you don't have to convince me. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really well done. I mean, you, you know, for, for an academic historian to be able to churn this out, I was reading it, uh, just finished it. And I'm, you know, I'm saying to my wife the whole time, like, how does she do this? I want to write like this. Right? Um, so, so yeah, kudos. Let's, let's Thank go you. back. Let's go back to, um, let's go back to the, 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 to the story again. Earlier in the interview, I think you said, this is a story that needed to be told. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that's, that's kind of the understatement of the year, right? Here yeah. on the podcast. Um, this is obviously, as you've already pointed out, a story that's much more about it, it's not just about soccer, right? No. Um, why is this, why is this story so important? Um, especially in our, our political climate, um, you gesture towards the end of the book, even to, uh, the 2016 presidential campaign and yeah. all of the things with refugees and immigration that went on with that. Why is, why is this, why do we need to know this story now, uh, in, in 2018? Um, maybe in a way that, that 10 years ago, it would not have resonated as much. Or, or even two years ago. Two years you know, ago. Yeah. I've had, I've had a lot of panic attacks writing this book because when I started writing it, you know, and I, I was sort of, you know, the Syrian, the Syrian crisis is going on and, and I, I don't even like calling it a crisis because it's not a crisis, right? It's this ongoing, it's this ongoing horror. Um, and so I thought, you know, this book is so relevant. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We got to get this book out. We got to get this book out. And, and, you know, things are not going to get worse. Um, I'll show all of my colors right, now. Right. And, you know, then, then the presidential campaign ramps up and I think, all right, well now we really got to get this book out, yeah, <laughs> you know, and you yeah. see, you see a presidential candidate, you know, throwing a Muslim woman out of a rally or, you know, you, you hear about a wall being built to keep people out. Um, and, and the assumptions as to who is good and who is bad and who belongs and who doesn't. Um, and you can, you can look at these things on a global scale and you can look at these things on the national scale. And then you can look at, you know, the politics of a team, yeah. right. In a town, right. Because teams are about belonging. Um, and teams are about representing something, a school and a city and a, and a state and a country. Um, and then the presidential actual election happens. And I, again, sort of ramp up and think, okay, now we really have to get this book out. Right. And then the travel bans get announced and that, you know, it just keeps going. Um, so, you know, do I think that fear and bigotry are new? No, I, you know, a historical statements right. like that make me crazy. Um, 
But I do think that the question of, of how do we try to get a handle on fear and bigotry, and I think they're so closely tied together, um, you know, to, to think of a story that is about fear and bigotry, but is also about inclusion and understanding, and what kind of things can come out of moments of inclusion and understanding, you know, in this, in this case, soccer, I think is really important. And I think, you know, at the core of this, to think about, you know, what, what does the world want the story of refugees to be? Um, you know, do, you know, you think about a, a president, a president of the United States using profane language to talk about the nations that some of these people have come from, right? Fought. Mm-hmm. Um, to get their families to other places. And and you think, you know, so does that mean you want them to cease to exist because their their own homes, their own places of belonging have been destroyed by things that are completely outside of their own realm of power? Mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you want these people to just fade into the ether and, and will use this profane language to describe their homelands? Or do we want to be humans yeah. and recognize that that their story is our story? Because that's humanity, yeah. right? That's that's humanity defined to me. Can you? Um, so understanding Lewiston and understanding Lewiston's story, this tiny microcosm and, mm-hmm. and an even smaller microcosm of a team within a town, I, I think I hope can can provide some blueprint. And yeah. and you know I'm not I'm not dreamy about this, and and I think that's pretty clear at the end of the book, um, in that. You know, just because a town comes together, it doesn't mean it's going to stay together. But the moment of this state championship game is people coming together. Can you think, Amy, can you tell us maybe some, maybe you can't, I don't know. I hope you can though. Some tangible things that you've seen. Now, again, I don't think we've talked about this. Uh, it's, it's been implied throughout the entire interview, but throughout the book, you tell all kinds of stories about the sort of, you know, racism that these, these kids had to deal with the things yelled at them every time they went on an, uh, on an away game to another town in largely white Maine. Um, can you think of some tangible way in which these, you know, what you're talking about kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of racial differences were at least lessened as a result of this team. I mean, what did this team do to the town of Lewiston and the, you know, were there substantial changes that came out of this or, you know, was it just a natural high for a moment and how are things going now? Um, I mean, I think there's an ebb and flow to this stuff. And I, I think that we really, really want to say, oh, soccer saved a town. And, right. and, you know, it isn't soccer saving a town. There's a lot of people doing a lot of really good things in Lewiston. There's people who are who are forming, you know, and I think this is very clear in the book that there are so many members of the immigrant community in, in Lewiston who created organizations to support the community and, and figure this out. I, I think one of the most fascinating things to me is that, you know, we often talk about American immigration, U.S. immigration as a melting pot, as assimilation, as Americanization. Mm-hmm. And in Lewiston, it's a negotiation. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's a community who wants to retain who it is and still belong to where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that in that case, in that, in that framework, um, we can see some enormous success. But 
you know, it, it's just because things happen on a personal level doesn't mean that the big picture is going to change. And, and you and I, I know, have gone in, in circles many a time about the difference between progress and change. Yeah. And, and I do think that progress is an ahistorical notion. I, I think that it's really that you can talk about change all of the time, but, but to assume progress is really difficult. So I don't know, um, you know, what the long arc of, of are things better? Do I think things are better right now? No, I think things are horrible right now. Um, do I think that the potential of better has been shown by something like a soccer team? Absolutely. But again, and I'll, I'll repeat it. And I think I'm actually probably quoting the book, which is a little scary. You're allowed to do that. Just, just, just because it comes together doesn't mean it stays together. I think these things are so fragile and we need to appreciate that, how fragile they are. And we need to do better to make them less fragile. True. I I love that quotation because I, as you're talking about this story, what I, what keeps coming to mind is that this, you know, in our current political climate, especially in regards to refugees and immigration, we have seen so many lines being crossed that I think many of us two, three years ago thought could not be crossed. And what I love about this, what I love about this story is it, it reminds us of where that first line was because one of my fears is in this climate, we're going to get so far from where we, where we started that we're going to forget where that start was and, and things that, that five years ago we would not have been, we would not have been okay with, we will grow to be more okay with. And, and, yeah. and I, I just really love how this story said, no, this is what, this is what our ideals are. And you can read it you can read this book and really reconnect with this kind of, uh, th- this higher ideal of a, of a shared humanity that unfortunately much of our political discourse is leaving behind. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, you're speaking and, and there was lots of talk about this in the very early days of, of the Trump presidency. And I'm, I'm using, I'm using scare quotes. You just, I just yeah. can't see them because it's a podcast. Um, <laughs> but you know, we talked about normalization. Don't, don't let things become normalized. Um, you know, the new normal for me was waking up every morning and making five phone calls to somebody that I voted for. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's a new normal, right? That didn't used to be my morning routine to, to be that, that vocal and make sure that I was that vocal every morning with, with people who were, you know, making cabinet decisions and voting on things and what have you. But the new normal is also about getting used to stuff. So exactly as Drew just said, the line moves. Um, and I think it is really important to have sort of these narratives, um, not just narratives about what's going on now, but, but, you know, again, you, you see narratives of, of people talking about Europe in the 1920s and 1930s and, and thinking about where those lines shifted and, and when do you start noticing stuff? Um, students ask me all that, you know, students all the time, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what my parents were doing when this was going on and, and turning to them and saying, well, you know what, you've got your own, this is going on. So, so take stock in yourself and not, not just the people who came before you. Amy, this has been incredible. I wish we could go another hour. Where can we learn more about the book other than the normal sort of sites, Amazon and so (laughs) forth? Do you have a website? Yeah, you can find me at www.amybass.net. You can find me on Facebook, author Amy Bass, Twitter, BassAB1. Hachette's got a page. You can just Google Amy Bass, one goal. Something will pop up. Yeah, Um, uh, go out, get this book, folks. It's phenomenal. It's a great read, especially if you're into sports, soccer. I was reading some of it to my 16-year-old who plays soccer, and I think I'm, I'm handing off the galleys to her next. 
uh, for her to read. She, she's like, a real copy because there's a postscript. That's yeah, I know. Behind. I know. I read the galleys <laughs> and, and there is a new, the new, the actual uh, published edition has a postscript. So I need to go get that. But uh, thanks so much for your time, Amy. I know you're, you're on a busy publicity schedule here for this book. Well-deserved. And uh, thanks for giving us some time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Drew. Thanks for having me, John. Good to talk to you guys. You too. Well, once again, another home run for Mamie Bass. Yeah, it's it's nice to have historians on on the podcast that we can use sports metaphors with. with. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, I was blown away too as I read the book. I, I meant to ask her this. I don't know how much of a soccer fan she was before she wrote this book, but she clearly she clearly knows how to write like a soccer writer. Uh, you know, some of the stuff she was using words I had sort of never heard of before. You know, to describe different moves and so forth, and and just amazing amount of research that went into this thing. Yeah, I'm just I, I'm just amazed by by the you know we discussed it during the interview, but just the importance, the political importance of 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 this book in this moment. You know, it it I mean, it's a, it's a story that we need to hear because we need we need to be humanizing uh, the experiences of of our refugee population more than ever. Yeah, and so so again, go out, go out and get a copy. I said this a couple times during the interview. It's a quick read. It's an entertaining read, and it's really an inspiring read. And um, I love the way Amy also in the book takes sort of little, she takes a few side kind of side tracks here and there. They're not really side tracks. They're kind of contextual, you know, tries to put the, put the book in contextual framework with some of the history of Maine, the history of Lewiston, the history of Somali refugees. So you, you still see, even though it's a very sort of the best way, a kind of journalistic book and, and a kind of very trade kind of book, a popular book you see her historian. She can't escape her historian's uh, mindset uh, in this book. So it's really, really well done in that sense. So again, go out and get the book. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And Drew, I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Again, thanks for listening, folks. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Amy Bass. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Dilley Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done.